Welcome to the Reminders of Grace podcast. The Reminders of Grace podcast exists to provide a reference for truth, promote a refocus on the gospel, and provoke a profound reminder of grace for our lives today. I am your host, my name is Derek, and I want to welcome you to the show. Your presence and engagement within this space is greatly appreciated. We are now in the second half of our series on subtle strongholds, and I want to thank all of you that have taken the time to share a message, leave a comment on social media, or give me an encouraging word speaking to how this series has been an encouragement and a help to you. It's wildly humbling and very exciting. I've prayed for this, even though I can admit I didn't see it or envision it. But it's really one of two things I ever really wanted. For who God and what the gospel is to be central, and for people to be encouraged and reminded of the grace that we've been given and the grace that we need to give. So thank you so much for that. As we walk into this episode, I want us to revisit what a stronghold is as it pertains to our context. A stronghold is a place that we run to. It can provide comfort, respite, or encouragement. However, these strongholds are not providing us with lasting versions of those things. In fact, these strongholds are major problems, but we don't tend to view them that way. We view them more as nondescript, more unsuspecting, more subtle. These things have established a level of permanence, but genuinely should not be there. They're things that seem subtle in our personal valuation and comparison. They're things that in some, and perhaps even in most cases, have settled in and we didn't even really notice. They're places that we run to almost instinctively. And the reality is we must address and deal with these strongholds. We would love nothing more in ourselves than to build walls around them, to strengthen them, to fortify them, but they will hurt us far more and long before they help us. So let's just get rid of them. These have looked like, in the order in which we have examined them, anger, bitterness, complaining, doubt, and fear. So here we are in part six of our Subtle Stronghold series, and we're going to talk about the issue of idolatry. What even is idolatry? I mean, it's the 21st century, and for many of us under Western culture and influence, Actual statues and idols are very scarce. So does that mean that this conversation doesn't apply to us? Sadly, no. In fact, it is in my personal opinion, which you may have picked up on the fact that I don't share that very often, I think we need it way more. And in a few moments, we'll get into why. But first, what is idolatry? The dictionary defines idolatry as excessive attachment or veneration, or devotion for anything. Respect or love which borders on adoration, the worship of idols, images, or anything which is not God. So, one of my favorite parts, what can we seek to learn from this definition? Number one, idolatry is not an emotion, an accident, unknowing or unknowable, because it is by nature placed in the context of superlatives, because it says excessive attachment. 
Number two, idolatry is directed anywhere, to anyone, for anything. Did you catch that? It's got nothing to do with a little statue or a shrine. Now, that would fit under that category, but it's not limited to that. By dictionary definition, everything has the potential to be an idol. Now, stay with me, because as if it were confusing somehow, it's about to get cleared up. Number three, idolatry incites the same action, the same response, the same feeling or emotions that are reserved for deity. Which leads us to number four, only one person is worthy of that type of adoration described. And it's the God of the universe. It is not an idol of this God or any other lowercase g God. It is not an image of this God or any other God or even a good figure. It is idolatry if it is not directed toward or offered to any single other place but to God alone. Those are not my words. That is not a Christian's point of view. It is what the dictionary says idolatry is. Idolatry is a subtle stronghold because it doesn't look like just one thing. It doesn't just fit into a box. It's a subtle stronghold because it doesn't say that it's only bad things or only harmful things or only negative things. It says it's anything. No one and nothing outside of the holy God and sovereign creator of all things is exempt. We don't get to decide what it is. We don't get to deny its presence or its impact. We have no say here. And if that sounds aggressively rigid and harsh, just know I don't decide that. Now I'm by no means backing down from it, but I also didn't start it, and I won't be the final word on it. So if idolatry is clearly defined in the dictionary, that definition had to have been formed from somewhere. And this is where we turn our attention to scripture to the truth that it declares, to the lessons that it teaches, to how we should live in light of that. If idolatry takes place when we are excessively attached to, or loving and adoring something other than God, then where does that start? Idolatry is only bad because God is only good. Now before you venture that that's just an elementary answer, stay with me. Idolatry is bad because God deserves our excessive attachment, because God deserves our devotion and our adoration, because he is the only one that is worthy of our worship. Anytime we fail to give it to him, to give to him what he deserves, that's bad. Anytime we direct what he deserves somewhere else, that's bad. Idol worship comes up numerous times in scripture. Actual graven images and statues that were made that literally get worshipped. Now this won't be an exhaustive list, but let's look at a few. One of the first instances that we come to is Aaron and the golden calf with the children of Israel. Exodus 32, Moses leads by God's powerful hand the Hebrews out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, and into the wilderness where they would head for the promised land. 
God leads them to Mount Sinai, and it is there that Moses receives the law. Now, we most often associate this time with him receiving the Ten Commandments, but it was much more than just that. Moses was up at the top of the mountain as the Hebrews anxiously awaited his return. As Moses delayed in coming down, because God had a lot to say and to share with Moses, the people grew annoyed, and they grew heartless and restless and wondered if Moses ever really was going to come back. And so they approached Aaron, Moses' brother, and said to him, Make us a god which will go before us. In other words, they came to Aaron and said, Make us an idol, because Moses is never coming back. As if Moses was their hope. As if Moses was their source of security. As if they had not seen God literally split a giant body of water in half. As if they had not seen God move they asked for an idol to lead them. And Aaron, who will eventually become the high priest, the minister of God for the people, in this moment, he doesn't even hesitate to say, all right, let's do it. So he has them gather all their gold jewelry, and he forms it into a golden calf. And this just gets more and more wild. The very next verse says that the people said to each other, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Wait, what? So the actual living God, who moved in mercy and grace in his almighty power, and delivered you from enslaved bondage, brought you out of Egypt healthy and wealthy, and then parts the Red Sea and drowns the pursuing army behind you, you have the nerve to create an idol and say, this is the God that did all of that for us. Aaron goes along with that. He does nothing to correct it. And he encourages it by building an altar to this new idol that they just made. He plans to have a feast celebrating all that this five-minute-old idol has done for them over the past few weeks. Question mark. At the top of the mountain, God is fully aware of what's going on, and he won't stand for it. God has made it clear that he's a jealous God demanding and deserving of all the worship and all the praise and all the adoration. He has made it clear that what is happening down at the bottom of the mountain is in total rebellion against the law that he is in the middle of giving to Moses. Now, before we get too far away from something I just said, I want to focus in on something that we could easily misunderstand if we don't know what it means. I have a friend in mind in particular that I know will appreciate this. I said that God has made it clear that he's a jealous God. And instinctively, that carries a negative connotation for us. We think of jealousy as a bad thing, which generally it tends to be. But God can't be sinlessly perfect and distinctly set apart and at the same time be wrongfully jealous. So we need to understand this. It's not important because I just mentioned it. It's important because understanding it means that we understand the very basis of why God views idolatry the way he does. When we say, and ultimately when the Bible says God is jealous, it means this. The immeasurable beauty of God's perfect love meets the indignant fire of God's righteous wrath. 
God loves so much and so perfectly that he is righteously angered when we do not give him the worship that he is due. God created us. He loves us. He owes us nothing, and we owe him everything. So when we don't give him what is rightfully his, he gets righteously angry. So here's a way we can remember the difference. When we are jealous, we are often jealous of something or someone. But he is jealous for something. We get jealous of what someone has of a resource, of a possession, of a following, of a recognition. But when God is jealous, it's for his worship, his praise. It's for his adoration and glory from us. Again, the reason we stepped out to focus is because what's about to happen next is going to need that context. And so back in our story, God tells Moses, quote, the people have so quickly forsaken me. And they've turned to a way which I've told them not to go. And he goes on and he essentially says, Moses, give me a minute. I'm about to burn this sucker down and start all over with you. Understand that God could have very easily done this and still 1,000% kept his covenant to Abraham. Because Moses was that link. He was the link to that. But Moses steps in and says, God, please don't. If you do this, people will say that you only led your people out of Egypt just to kill them. So let's not brush over the fact, though, that Moses, who over the next 40 years might have had moments where he regretted doing this on behalf of the people, in this moment, he stands and he talks to God like he was talking to a friend. And Moses stood between God's very justified, righteous wrath and the people. And he said, please show mercy. And the Bible says that God relented from what he said he would do. And Moses goes down the mountain and the story gets more and more wild still. He hears music and dancing and celebration to this new God that they just made. And in Moses' anger, he throws the tables of stone upon which God has just engraved the law. He throws them on that golden calf, breaking both the tablets and the calf. He takes the calf and he grounds it into powder and he puts it in the water and he makes the people drink it. I told you it was going to get wild. And Moses confronts Aaron, who was supposed to be the interim leader in Moses' absence. And he said, what did the people do to you to make you do this for them? In other words, Moses, did they torture, or Aaron, did they torture you? Did they threaten you? Did, did they threaten to kill you? What happened that made you make it easy for them to sin against God? Aaron's answer, are you ready? Don't be mad, Moses. You know that the people are committed to being evil. Essentially saying, I couldn't fight against them even if I tried, so I just gave in. I told them to bring me their gold, and best and worst part, all rolled into one. I threw it into the fire, and this calf just came out. So Aaron just sold out the people as if it was only on them, and then he said that he threw the gold into the fire, and out popped this calf. Must have been some fire. There was a lot here, but the takeaway is this. 
God is the only one that deserves and demands our worship. Therefore, idolatry makes him jealous. Well, the people would continue into this downward spiral, and it would become a cycle for them. And we read about that in the book of Judges. It's a downward spiral of idolatry, and God would punish them for it. And they would cry out for deliverance, and God would be merciful and raise up a deliverer for them. And they would have peace for a season before going right back to it. God would raise up a monarchy at the reckless request of the people. And over the next 120 years, King Saul, then King David, and then King Solomon at 40 years apiece. And then the kingdom would split. Two of the 12 tribes would be good. They would never have a bad king. The other ten would be bad, and contrarily, they would never have a good king. They would deal with high places or shrines and caves and mountains that were dedicated to the worship of other gods. They would deal with idolatry. They would deal with people keeping secret statues. The kings would either call for an all-out cleanse or they would perpetuate that practice more and bigger and worse. And this existed in both kingdoms. One story we can read about is about Elijah and King Ahab. First Kings 18 would be another look at this. The nation was encouraged into idolatry and worship of the god Baal, an alleged god of agriculture. And the people were plunged into this by a wicked king in Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Elijah, a prophet, the mouthpiece of God to his people, he would call out the wickedness and the idolatry. He would challenge the king. He would challenge the prophets to a showdown where he would prove before the entire kingdom who the one true God really was. And while we won't take the time to walk through the whole chapter because it's on the lengthy side, it was here that the people saw the power of God. It was here that the people saw that God is alone worthy of worship, praise, and adoration. And while these same people would fall back into this idolatry, we see moments where the people see God for who he is. Both kingdoms would go into exile. They would be separated from their home and from their familiarities. Few would have the privilege to return back decades later. They would be forced to worship other gods in Babylon and Assyria. They would be forced to praise and adore other kings in Persia. These were tangible idols that the Israelites would deal with over and over and over again. And then from the silence, a cry. God in human flesh would come in the person of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus walked this earth, the idols looked a little bit different. Idolatry would look like tradition, politics, family, responsibilities. Let me know if something sounds familiar to us. Religion, riches, status, gender, the law, and race. Very much still idolatry. Still very much an affront to the God that deserves and demands worship, praise, and adoration. Still very much inciting his jealousy, but it doesn't look the same. This stronghold gripped God's people for thousands of years under the old covenant and under the new one. We're still subject to it. 
But why? How is this still such an issue for us? John Calvin, a Christian leader from the 1500s, summed it up pretty well when he said this, quote, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Our hearts, a central collective of who we are as people, our mind, will, and emotions. So the things that we think, the things that we desire to have or to do, and the things that we feel, right in that exists the ever-present, never-satisfied activity of manufacturing and producing idols. And like we said earlier, these idols aren't limited to ones of precious metals and stone. These idols aren't restricted to ones of images. These are just the things that we allow to supplant the throne of our worship and adoration and the only God that demands and deserves to sit upon that throne. This can look like the list that we mentioned earlier. Family, friends, gender, politics, race, relationships, responsibilities, riches, self, status, tradition, etc. But here's the problem. While not a comprehensive list, looking at each one of these, not a single one of them is bad on their own. Now, sometimes there are bad things. Sometimes there are wicked, immoral, and anti-God things that we give ourselves to that we refuse to let go. We reverence them in high regard. We run to them first, we run to them fast, and we run to them frequently. That happens. And that, my friends, is idolatry. And it's subtle. But then there's these things that are not bad. In fact, it's the opposite. These things can be very good, but they become idols when they become the most important thing in our lives. When they get my utmost devotion, it's an idol. When they are the content of my loudest message, it's an idol. When I have ignored reality in order to satiate these things, it's an idol. When these things matter to me more than God or what matters to God, it's an idol. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory because we have taken things that are nothing and we have not just made them something, we have made them everything. That, my friends, is idolatry and it's subtle. We don't always set out to make a throne room for these things. But over time, its value and its importance to us grows and it grows. And we can't think about it without inciting a negative emotion in us. We can't have a conversation about it without it turning into a debate. Somehow everything that happens is viewed through that paradigm. That, my friends, is idolatry. And it's subtle. I'm not in the least purporting that you ignore, avoid, or reject these things. Because that's not what I believe God suggests either. That's not what we should do. The pleading warning that God himself makes is... He who loves father or mother, brother or sister more than me. It's not wrong for you to have or even work hard for your riches. It's not wrong for you to have social status. But if that's all that drives you, if that's the ultimate and utmost goal of your life, if that's what matters to you more than God and more than a relationship with him, that, my friends, is idolatry. And it's subtle. So what do we do? Before we close this out, let's get practical. 
Because as we say every single episode, his grace is always, no matter what, greater still. So we don't have to reside within this stronghold of idolatry. We don't have to be ruled by these things. So what can we do? Before we get into that, let me give you some context. Back in the summer of 2012, almost exactly 10 years ago, I spent a summer in South New Jersey. It was at that time I was introduced to a song. If I had a Spotify wrapped for that year, this song would have exponentially blown every other song away in terms of how much I listened to it. The artist is Jimmy Needham. The song is called Clear the Stage. I'll be sure to link it in the show notes just in case you forgot that this gem existed or you have never heard it before. The song focuses on our worship. Many times in the Christian faith, we equate worship with singing, with the music portion of a weekly gathering or with a certain type of song. And that's not incorrect, but it is incomplete. Worship is more than that. We have had an incredible discussion about worship on this podcast back in season one with a dear friend of mine named Kyle. That's season one, episode 10, entitled Worship for the Ages. If you're interested, go back and listen to that as you are able. But because worship is really just ascribing or assigning worth to something, worship to God can happen in more than just singing, but certainly not exempt from singing. The song focuses on our hearts, being right before God, before this holy God that deserves and demands our worship. The song calls out all the trappings that we set up in a tangible sense and within our hearts that we have justified to be synonymous with good worship. If these things exist, worship is good. If these things exist, worship was good. It challenges us to examine our hearts for selfishness, for sin, and you guessed it, to examine our hearts for idolatry. The chorus tells us that we could sing all we want and still be getting worship wrong. We can sing and sing and still have idols. So we need to address them. Whether it is an actual sin or it's something good that we have just made too much out of It needs to go. And so here's what is prescribed. Number one, remember who God is. I know how that sounds as I say it, but I want to focus on how I mean it. It's not just as simple as remembering that God is God. It's remembering that you are not. It's remembering that nothing else can be God, that no one else can take his place, that nothing else deserves his praise No one else can rightfully demand his worship. Remembering who God is means that you remember what and who is not God and never allowing those things to trade places. Number two, recognize what the idols are. So the song runs and before it concludes, there's a bridge that ultimately is the real reason why the song is so good. There is practical truth here, there is incredibly convicting truth here, and it says this. Anything I put before my God is an idol. Anything I want with all my heart is an idol. Anything that I can't stop thinking of is an idol. Anything that I give all my love is an idol. 
And herein lies the reality. If you were to take your life and filter it through these four statements, what would change? What would go away? See, this won't only reveal the wrong things that we do. This will reveal the good things in our lives that we have made God things, and therefore those have become bad things. If I put my desires above God, it's an idol. If you can't stop thinking about that girl or that boy, it's an idol. If attaining that material possession is what fills our hearts, it's an idol. If all of our love and devotion is poured out on friends, on family, and nothing is left for us to give to God, that, my friends, is an idol. If a political stance is more important than where God clearly stands, it's an idol. I think, no, I know, a lot in my life would be rearranged and transformed frequently if I constantly filtered it through these phrases. And I can 100% admit to that. And I need what comes next. I need to remember who God is. I need to recognize what the idols are. And I desperately need to remind myself, and you need to remind yourself, of his grace. When I can honestly call out the things in my life that have become idols, I need to repent. Which means I need to change my mind about those things. And start living differently because of that change. God, I can't stop thinking about that relationship. I can't stop wanting that job. I can't seem to put you first. I can't stop spending all of me on this person. Reorder my life and help me put you back where you deserve and demand to be. When that happens, remind yourself that God's grace is greater than any idol that we have given to ourselves or any idol we have given ourselves to. His grace is far greater than any stronghold we just can't seem to stop running to. His unmerited, undeserved, and unearned kindness and favor toward us is especially amazing and exponentially abundant. He doesn't want us to be stuck in that pattern of idolatry. He died to set us free from it. But while our heart is a perpetual idol factory, his grace is a powerful idol destroyer. So if you'd not consider yourself a follower of Jesus or a Christian, maybe you have questions on what that means or what it would look like. That is a good place to be. I want to encourage you to reach out to me, and in just a moment I'll let you know some ways that you can do that. Know that this is a place where you will be loved and you will find grace for wherever you are in life. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, tell me about it. There are a few ways that you can connect with me. My email at remindersofgracepodcast at gmail.com. That's reminders with an S of gracepodcast at gmail.com. In addition, you can find a link to our new website as well as my socials in the info section of this episode. Don't forget while you're there to check out that song that we mentioned earlier. Also, if you could please do me a favor and be sure to leave a review and then click on that subscribe or follow button wherever you engage with the podcast to be certain that you never miss an episode. And as you head into your week, as you navigate through your journey, as you face whatever you face, or as you seek to live on mission, be reminded of his grace and know that no matter what, it is always every single time greater still.